Rich and I are back for another edition of the Sixers Beat. A real quick note, uh, we did record this Friday afternoon, about an hour before the news came out, that the Sixers had interviewed three candidates for their general manager spot. Uh, that being said, I listened to it back. It all holds up. We will record another podcast this week on, on, on aforementioned candidates, but we just wanted to give you a heads up before you listen to it. Like I said, I think for the most part, the conversation holds up and we didn't want to scrap it, so we're going to go ahead and release it. We also talk about Markel Fultz playing five on five, on what we're looking for in Joel Embiid and areas that he can improve, and then we go into a couple of mailbag questions at the at the end. Uh, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by RX Bar. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for, for subscribing, and have a good day. Welcome, everybody. This is Derek. I'm back here with Rich for another week of the Sixers Beat, part of the CLNS Media Network. How you doing, Rich? I'm good, man. I, I want a new position at The Athletic. Okay. I, I want it to be called, I don't know, I was thinking junior writer in charge of technology and strategy. Okay. All right. Why that? Why that? Explain. I don't know. I, I like strategy. I think I can. Uh, I got some good ideas, and uh, I just want to make the title as uh, as long as possible. <laughs> so not not going for the senior vice senior vice president of technology and strategy. Not quite there yet. Well, I, I don't want to shoot too high yet. I mean, <laughs> I I got, I got to be realistic here. Well, we'll we'll work on that. We'll work on that. Do you, do you actually want like a pay bump or any increase in responsibility, or just a title? Well, that would be nice. I mean, I, I think uh, we could talk about that a little bit off air. All right. But, fair, uh, fair enough. But, yes, there were some title changes here in the uh, in the recent past as just, what, maybe two days after we dropped the last episode of the Sixers beat, which, knock on wood, thank God we got that one out in time because we have a little bit of a problem of recording a podcast <laughs> and having news break and having to trash a podcast. So we didn't have to do that. I would recommend going back and listening to that again because I think – a lot of what we said turned out to be true and how things played out. And you had Joshua Harris telling ESPN, Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN, that they have reengaged their GM search. Over the last few weeks, they have started interviewing what I think the way they phrase it was candidates who aren't currently sitting GMs. So assistant GMs, VP of basketball, or, or you know, vice president types, uh, things in people in second, third in command and such. And also in conjunction with that, they, I think it was what, a total of five promotions, four of which were, um, you know, in the front office and then one coach, uh, Kevin Young, who moved moved up the bench. But five com- promotions, Ned Cohen, Mark Eversley, Elton Brand, and Alex Rucker, uh, essentially the top of the basketball decision making, which is the title changes you were referring to. Uh, it seems like the most, I mean, Two of them, uh, Mark Eversley and Alex Rucker, just got a senior added to their title. So Mark Eversley was the vice president of player personnel. He's now the senior vice president of player personnel. Alex Rucker, the um, well, he was a president, vice president of basketball analytics and strategy. He's now the senior vice president of basketball analytics and strategy. The two who had a, a substantive change is Ned Cohen, who's now the assistant general manager, and Elton Brand, who now has a role officially with the Philadelphia 76ers. 
in reality, he probably always had a role in basketball operations in with the Philadelphia 76ers. The player or the person before him, Brandon Williams, also had a similar dual role. So this was to be expected, but has now been formalized. And they've all essentially been giving, first of all, they've been given new contracts, which is key. And it probably doesn't matter too much. Like if you're trying to read the tea leaves of what this means, whether or not they'll be around, there's a lot of tea leaves to suggest that Joshua Harris and Brett Brown want these guys around long term. Uh, but these contracts probably aren't a huge deal. Um, you know, these are teams that are all valued at over a billion dollars at this point. Uh, whether or not a player, uh, uh, personnel guy has an extra year on his contract isn't really going to determine whether or not they stick around with the team. But I think it was probably a good indication they're going to stick around with the team anyway. So this kind of just formalizes it a bit more. So I guess we're going to take a step back. First of all, congratulations to those four gentlemen who now have a little bit more money, a little bit more responsibility, and a little firmer future. But taking a step Definitely. back as a fan, what do you read? Again, and I feel like this is what the last podcast was about, but now we have a little different information. What do you read as what is going on and what is to come in the Sixers GM search? Yeah, it's uh, and you we can't emphasize enough how a lot of times our podcasts don't hold up well. <laughs> we 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 always joke about how when we stop recording, something is going to happen, some news is going to break that completely dates what we just finished talking so about. Part of my problem is I am a little bit obsessive uh, in the fact that if there's a car in the background, I'm going to try to get that out. If there is a cat that knocks over piece of furniture, which, by the way, happens far more than it should. I'm going to try to edit that out. So I listen to podcasts two or three times before I post them. Uh, it has some benefits in the fact that you hear less of my cat. It has some drawbacks in the fact that sometimes some news breaks between them. So I should I should really, um, really tighten that up, but it is what it is. But but this was the first example of you hitting me up afterwards and saying, wow, I feel even better about that podcast a few days later. So uh, so pat ourselves on the back for, uh, for that one. Um, as far as the GM search, yeah, I don't think anything has really – changed it's uh it's an awkward situation from from the outside i think when when harris when he talked to woge the idea of gathering information on several assistant gm candidates and non-top executives in recent weeks when you read that i i think we already knew that they weren't looking that hard but when you read that, it's hard not to be like, well, what were you waiting for, man? Uh, and then, yeah, I, I, to me, it seems like, you know, and to his credit, he admitted, like, that the Sixers are probably going to go into this year with the current structure in place. And, and they're comfortable with that. And, you know, what to think about that? I, I think we talked about this a lot last week. I, I think from the outside – it's it's not the most satisfactory conclusion of this for sure. Uh, it's not I, I, more times than not this type of structure doesn't work. That doesn't mean it won't work here, but yeah. So it just seems like this this search is hasn't really happened yet. And uh, you know you got a mention on ESPN thanks to uh, Cassidy Hubbard and the and the jump. The most pointless is, mention. That's always how it turns out is when you get mentioned on ESPN is for the <laughs> most yeah. ludicrous reason. Like there was no reason they even had to mention me, but I will take it. Thank you very much. Uh, 
Yeah, and I think all in general, all of those people getting promotions was a, a good sign for them, even if it, you know, when you read it in the press release, I'm sure they got a pay bump, but it just looked symbolic from the outside that they'll uh, they'll very likely move ahead with this current structure for the near future, right? Yeah. So, you know, last episode, we talked about whether or not it mattered if the Sixers had a GM in August. And we said, by and large, it didn't. And I want to be clear on one thing. That doesn't mean that I think it doesn't matter whether they have a GM this season. That was only whether or not they had a GM in August. And I did think that eventually... So I think there's a couple really interesting things that came out in what was largely a non-update outside of a guy's getting a new contract. Um, The one that you brought up was the fact that they only began interviewing non-sitting GM candidates in the last couple of weeks. I don't think they even interviewed him. I think he said gathering information. Right. I I think you're right. So the fact that they haven't promoted anyone and made it official yet makes me think that they are actually interested in hiring somebody on the outside. It may not be this summer. It might be next next spring. I don't know. But I think there's some level of interest in them trying to find the right guy outside of the organization, or at least exploring that option. And if that is the case, then what in the bleepity bleep bleep took them so long to realize they might have to talk to guys who aren't second in command, to people who aren't second in command? It, does, it, 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 just, it boggles my mind. So here is... You know, this is talking about now their expanded search. We're going to have a pretty selective list. This is not going to be a huge tournament. We're going to talk to some people who aren't sitting GMs who could add value to our situation. And then at a different point in the article, Harris says, what I've learned is that is that the GM job has many facets and that it's a learned skill. It's certainly got a public-facing nature to it, but management and very strong relationships are important. And very few people who are not sitting GMs have all of those components. When he talks about adding value, that doesn't mean that it's just experienced guys could add value. Right. There are more than 30 people who could do this job. So the ironic thing that I find is that a lot of the people he's now talking about, and even if there aren't more than 30 people who could do the job, it doesn't mean that the 30 people are the ones who are current GMs. So, but all of the people that you imagine he is looking at that are current sitting GMs who have that experience he's so you know, he, he he desires, they weren't GMs before their current positions. Sam Presti, um, Daryl Morey, even R.C. Buford came up through the San Antonio organization, uh, and he was not, you know, when he started, he, he did not have any GM experience anywhere else before then. A lot of the top, top, top general managers were not general managers before their current position. And that's because a lot, you know, you're looking not for the people who have the experience, but the people who are the brightest. Sam Presti didn't, he was 30 freaking years old when he started in what was then Seattle. Like he didn't have the breadth of experience to go out there and look, but he had the, you know, the insight and the knowledge of the game. And he had kind of a different way of looking at things. And you could project that he was going to be a really good decision maker. And this thought that, first of all, to tie yourself to people who have had the opportunity to be a general manager right now is, is extremely short-sighted. And maybe, you know, maybe they're looking at it differently because they're an established team and they have, um, you know, maybe maybe they're viewing the decisions aren't quite as drastic that they need to make. Or maybe they're looking at it and attributing a lot of Hinky's 
problems to the fact that he wasn't previously a GM and he wasn't in that top spot. And I think there certainly could be some truth to that from their perspective. I don't agree with it. I think the, the problems were largely overblown, but I don't think Josh Harris agrees with me. So I wonder where that's coming from. But I think it's extremely short-sighted because, look, people who have been the GMs, we like to talk that this is like a merit system, a merit-based system. It's really not. There's a lot of GMs who are GMs because they had opportunity, they had the connections, they had um, you know, the right spot, right time to advance their career. Some of them even born with a father who, who ran a team. And <laughs> there are a lot of really smart guys out there, people out there. Um, I, I want to make that distinction clear because there will be a, a, a female general manager in the hopefully not too distant future. But there are a lot of people out there who haven't had that opportunity, who haven't been in the right place, right time, but who are still like probably legitimate geniuses, who are still basketball lifers, who still know the game inside and out and who deserve that opportunity. And a lot of times those candidates aren't quite as obvious as the general managers who are elite because we have a, it's a little easier to rate them. It's a little easier to attribute success or failure to a GM. But a lot of times there are assistant general managers, VP of basketball operations, what, what have you, who are deserving and capable and you have to go out there and you have to talk to them. And starting off only looking at GMs, short-sighted. Wasting, we're, what, 12 weeks away from when Brian Colangelo stepped down or was fired or mutually parted ways or however they announced it? Like, and, and, if you, and if you'll remember, in uh, when we were in Vegas and Harris and Brown talked, they said, now we're going to start. Get, getting moving on the GM search. It's, uh, it's, it's my, that was, that's almost two months ago. Now. Yeah, it's a month and a half ago. So the fact that we wasted all this time, they're now in kind of like the spot where they have to choose, do they want a GM now or do they want to take their time and be thorough? This was not a choice that had to be made. You could have had both. You could have accomplished getting your long-term GM in place before the season started and been thorough. And I just don't know why it took so long to really begin this 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 search process in earnest, why they spent so much time thinking that uh, apparently thinking like we don't know what Josh Harris was what was thinking when he made these decisions, but why they spent so much time on a group of current GM candidates who were very unlikely to leave their spot, who were very unlikely to even be able to get out of their contract, even if they wanted to. And then you, the only he names you really hear are Buford and, and Maury. And more, like we said last podcast, Maury's not leaving his spot. So I don't know why we needed to waste 12 weeks to get to this point, even if they started a couple of weeks ago gathering intel, why we needed to waste nine weeks to get to this point, because now you're in a spot where you might have to go into a crucial season. And let's not pretend ourselves and kid ourselves and think that the only major decisions they have to make are next summer in the draft and free agency. There will be trade opportunities that come up between now, especially in December through February when the, the trade season really gets going. And there will be decisions they'll have to make. There will be paths they have to choose whether or not to pursue. And now you have a you, you have an organization who might be, you know, incredible at what they do. But Joshua Harris hasn't committed them being the long term guiding forces of this front office. And they have to now make decisions because your long term basketball executive may still be out there. It's just it's I, I can't believe we're in a spot now where we're heading into September. They don't have a, a permanent GM in place. And we find out that they've only just begun vetting non-sitting GMs. It was mind-boggling to me. Mind-boggling. And by the way, if Joshua Harris would like to come on his podcast and explain why he went on you know, the route that he did, more than happy to have him. He won't, of course, though. But it, mind-boggling to me. He, but he is, he is free to try to explain his rationale. What do you think the, the process that, that he laid out would even look like? 
like maybe in late July, they, they have a conference call on a Monday. Uh, let's try and get Daryl Morey this week. All right, uh, we called him. He said no. And it's like, all right, see you next week. We'll uh, we'll look up somebody else. It's like, what what do you you can you can do all of this right. in this amount of time and be thorough. So if you uh, wanted to say like we, we we have a list of five or seven or ten G- current GMs, and if you want to say look, we want to try to pursue those before we we, we make offers to assistant GMs. Fine. That out in a week. Come you didn't on. have to wait until that process was over to start vetting them though. Like it's just I I I, I don't. This whole press really seemed to me to be like, look, we have something in mind. There's a current GM we want. We're going to float this out about the, you know, assistant, non-sitting GMs, assistant GMs, to kind of pacify and make it look like we're running a real search. But really what we're going to try to do is wait this out until next summer and see whether or not we can get the, the guy or, or one of the, the people that we want. That That's just reading the tea leaves, what it seems like to me. Yeah, and I, I have to say, I'm a little tired of Harris at every turn. And I get this is part of his job to be a salesman, but enough with, we have the best situation in the NBA and this is going to be a great spot for a GM. Well, okay. You said that in whenever Clanchville got fired, what's that like early June, late May, whenever that was, uh, how about we, uh, how about we get moving on the, uh, the GM search? Because this has been one of the, this has been pretty strange and you've at every turn said, you know, how attractive the the roster, the coaching staff, the rest of the infrastructure, the facilities are. That may be true, but uh, I have to be honest, like with the way this has all turned out, I, I can't say that you've really shown that. Uh, no. And yeah, it's, uh, you I know, I, even would if- you be, so would you be happier if they just named Eversley the GM, or is it, it for you? The big problem is no search. The, the big problem is no search. Yeah, uh, okay. Much more That's than fair. who they end up with, because like I said, it's hard for us to really know what Eversley or Cohen or any of the other assistant GMs really do and are really what, what's really been you know they've been driving in their current teams. To me, and this is the problem. Even if let's say, let's say hypothetically, we brought up the hypothetical last week about Buford and maybe trying to convince him next season. Even if that's the case, and even if they're successful at getting Buford next summer, to me it's still a waste because what happens if you need a GM in 2021 and 2022 and you didn't do the legwork this summer on these candidates who will probably still be candidates in two or three years? It's just you only you can only talk, and it's tough in the NBA because a lot of guys you can't talk to for contractual reasons. A lot of the, the GM types you can't interview in an interview setting because they are under contract with other teams. But they will typically let assistant GMs and VPs talk to other teams for an open position because they don't want to get in the way of a promotion. They want people to have upward mobility. So this is one of the very rare chances you get to talk to a, you know, Gerson Rosas or whoever you want to bring up as a candidate. And you could do some real legitimate research that could be helpful in future years. And they're just like, meh, we have a targeted list. And if that doesn't happen, so be it. And it's just, to me, if I was a fan, it would be, it would be pretty maddening. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have anything else on this. Uh, on this Training press camp release. starts in three weeks. They don't have a GM. It's amazing. Yeah. Ke- uh, I'm trying to think what else. Oh, uh, Kevin Young got promoted. Uh, for uh, He's on the front of the bench now, so good for Kevin. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a weird situation, man. But that's, that's the Sixers for you, right? Yes, it is. And, I mean, look, this isn't like – 
you know, I think whatever happens, I think Brett is going to continue to have a say. And I don't know if that's final say. And, like, certainly he's not going to be doing the day-to-day GM responsibilities. But I think he's I, – I don't think they're going to walk that back. I think this ownership group is a, a huge fan of Brett Brown. And like we said, finding somebody who has that experience as being a top-level GM and who will come in and share decision-making responsibility and doesn't have a chance to hire his own staff, I'm not sure that candidate exists. And they love to talk about collaboration. There, People brought up um, uh, Laurie and, and his obsession with collaboration, but Joshua Harris predates that. He's been talking about this since they bought the team back in 2011. And it's just, if I have to hear collaboration one more time. I swear, Like, everybody collaborates. Somebody's still going to end up having the final decision, the final call. Various people in the front office are going to have ownership's ear more than others. Like, hire a good GM. Lurie banished Howie to the basement for a year. Right, right. Collaborating from, uh, you know, from, from from down there. It's it's just it's I don't. It it's an excuse for why they haven't made a decision. And this is a team, you know, this is a, a, a an ownership group who date gave Doug Collins too much power. And I don't want to compare Brett Brown to Doug Collins because I I. I I think Brett's a much better, much better coach, and also has a, a much better um, head on his shoulders in terms of actually being willing to delegate responsibility and trust his staff. Like I think Brett will do that. Whereas he knows Doug, what I he think, doesn't. He right. knows what he doesn't know. Doug yeah. Doug didn't didn't know what he didn't know, and and I think some of the decisions <laughs> really bore that out. But this is an ownership group who is willing to maybe give who who falls in love. And they fell in lo- love with Doug. They fell in love with Colangelo. And I think I, they fall in love with Brett Brown. And is there a little concern that they will give him a little too much responsibility? Yeah, I think I, th- I think that's fair. And, and and maybe they fall in love with their own guys a little too much where they can't actually go out there and pursue those elite GM candidates that Harris is focusing on. Because, uh, uh, again, an elite GM candidate is probably going to want to bring in his own staff or at least have say over his own staff. And talking like you're trying to pursue them while also trying to carry around this staff. It's just, that's a tall task. It's a tall task. It's it's such a delicate balance finding the right group of people, especially when you're inserting one person at the head of all these other puzzle pieces that you've assembled. Uh, and, and Brett's a perfect example of that. He, you know, he's mentioned multiple times that he wants no part in being the GM. I I don't think it's fair. I like look again. This is just speculation on my part, but I don't think it's fair to just leave it at that. Like I think he wants to be heard, though. Right. And and I don't. What does that mean? I, I don't know exactly, but it it doesn't mean that. Or I, I think it means that he doesn't want to be in the back of the room when they're making a draft pick, and you know he's on the third row and he gets told who they're picking. Like I think he wants. He wants some input here, even if I I do think he understands that it needs to be somebody who uh, somebody else kind of pulling the strings. But yeah, it's uh it's uh certainly frustrating. And yeah, we we are uh, this podcast will be released in September, so uh, we're, we're getting pretty close here. Yes, we are. Um, all right, where do we want to swing to next? I guess uh I guess we could talk a little bit about uh about Markel. I uh I saw this, I'm not sure if it was an official pure sweat, not a not fake sweat, mind you, a pure <laughs> a pure sweat video or just on uh on one of Drew Hanlon's social media accounts 
but it looks like Markel is playing five on five. And uh, did that video have anything except a few second clip of him running up and down the floor playing defense? No. But Hanlon has said that his philosophy and and Brown's kind of alluded to it too when we asked him that uh, that he wanted Markel shooting jumpers for a few months to get that thing down. And sure. You know, as you saw, he does some ball handling and layup drills too, but no scrimmaging because he wanted to develop the uh, the muscle memory on that shot. I, I don't know if Fultz has a no jumper rule on these scrimmages, but the fact that he is running up and down, it seems like it could be progress. I mean, again, this is all speculation and and letting the the eyeball emojis flow, but it seems you know it uh. It seems like they're uh, they're on on pace to try and uh, get them ready for training camp. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know I think if you're reading the tea leaves because again, Hanlon was pretty emphatic that while a guy is rebuilding and and learning his shot, he doesn't want him playing five on five. Just so to see him playing five on five, it's fair to get a little bit encouraged. But it's still, I mean, we it, I'm very much and there is there is a report with uh, Liberty Ballers about his progress coming out, or a writer with Liberty Ballers uh, behind curve about progress and being encouraged and, and maybe even starting to begin the season. And this has nothing to do with, with him. Like, I'm sure he's I'm sure he's he's talked to people. But until I see it, and it helps that we're now three weeks away from seeing it ourselves, uh, we will have much more information to discuss this topic on in a very short amount of time. But right now there's so, you know, everybody has an agenda. And everybody has a reason for talking. But even if somebody talks to me directly, I'm not I'm not putting a whole lot of stock in it because there is just there's reason for them to say very specific things. And I do think it's a good sign that he's playing five on five. Like you, we don't know the extent of that. But by and large, like, am I gonna freak out? Like, no, we'll see in a couple weeks when he when he plays in front of us and we can see the form and we can see the consistency. And we'll we'll see in, you know, a month and a half when he starts playing in real games and we can see what he, you know, how adversity affects that shot and how, um, you know, how defenders and how timing and how being rushed affects that shot. Because there's still, there's just so much unknown that like, should you be mildly encouraged that he's playing five on five? Probably. But it's just, it's just, there's, it's, we, it's always how we talk about this. Like we're going to go through stages of certainty and, this is a, a decent first step with very little information. With his wife, the the basketball, as he uh, he's tweeted right. out. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have too much more on that. The uh, the Embiid post on Players Tribune was spectacular, by the way. Yeah, it was everything you would expect it to be from an, an, an Embiid post for sure. Someone, someone on Twitter said they don't like how those pieces are written, and I have to say I disagree totally. Like I think they're awesome because, and, and I think I'm guilty of this sometimes too. So much of the stuff you come across on the internet is totally overwritten. So when you get a player who just and and their writers just get down to the simplicity, just telling a story as basically as possible. Um, as if it were him just delivering a speech. I thought it was it was great. And I, again, it's stuff we had heard a million times. Most of it, some stuff we hadn't heard about his his upbringing in Cameroon. But uh, yeah, I would I would definitely check that out. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, uh, the Players Tribune dot com. You can go to Joel Embiid's Twitter. 
page he tweeted out, um, you know, talking about, you know, learning the game and how he couldn't play play growing up and how his family was really strict about his schooling and he had to sneak out to play soccer and then he came over here, couldn't speak English, being made fun of, talks about going to Kansas and asking Bill Self to, to redshirt him because he couldn't compete with these guys to, of course, the anecdote about YouTubing white people to learn how to shoot. It is it, it is a really good read. It's 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 funny. Uh, if you read it in Joel Embiid's voice, it's even better. Um, but it's a it it it's a good read. And I have kind of mixed feelings about Players Tribune a little bit. In fact, because you know you always wonder how much of that is actually their voice. Uh, but I'm sure it's at least them dictating the story. So it is it is good to get that perspective for sure. And Joel Embiid's was one of the better ones that we've seen. As a 30 year old, well, almost 30 year old white guy. Uh... My my elbow is tucked in. I'm my sure. elbow is not always tucked. I, uh, huh? I I'm always a little bit inconsistent. It's one of my problems. One of my many problems. <laughs> I uh, I did a piece on uh, on the Athletic Philly. Subscribe by the way. We're coming up on the uh, the one year anniversary. We we by the way we need a uh, a discount. Whenever whenever anybody asks what uh, like where you go to get the discount. The one I always say is the athletic.com slash birds with friends, which I think is still available. So I think uh, it's good that we're, we're hashing this out on the air. Well, but, I mean, uh, you, you'll, you'll never, it's real hard to find an athletic discount. So we should definitely set that up. <laughs> I want one specifically for us. Um, but I, just like I was piggybacking off a piece that, that you wrote earlier this year and uh, NBA post-ups, man, pretty good. I know that he struggled against the Celtics, and that to me that had a lot to do with uh, the mask he was wearing, and it just seemed like his touch on like hook shots were terrible. Um, but that was pretty efficient offense for the Sixers, and you know it's, it's something you wrote earlier this year where people say, well, you know, and they look at like the Dan D'Antoni rant from Marshall where it's that's not an efficient play. Well, if if you have the right amount of shooting and a dominant player who who can get to the line and find uh find shooters, it's it's pretty good, man. It's it's especially good when you look at Embiid and you can see so clearly how early he is in his development and understanding because he doesn't he doesn't need to fix anything physically to be a legitimate dominant post player. He needs to fix his mental understanding of the game and how to attack and how to read help defense and double teams and rotations because he is going to force a lot of rotations and he has the willingness to get guys open shots and if he just cuts down on his turnovers and becomes a little bit better of a passer out of it and he shows flashes of both more the passing than turnovers because turnovers are pretty consistently a problem but if he just he cuts he fixes those two areas there's so much growth potential in there, and it is something where the NBA has veered so far away from it that there are going to be so few teams that can really, if you space around him with three or four elite shooters, there's going to be so few teams that can really, really defend against that. It's going to, it's going to take teams out of how they prefer to play. It's going to take teams out of how they prefer to stagger their lineups. And, oh, by the way, you can also do a better job of getting him beat easy buckets which should help him quite a bit as well. Um, I think there's a, a lot of room for improvement from Embiid, a lot of room. The one thing I worry about with him, and Hanlon's talked about he, he wants him to get back to, to playing kind of bully ball and, and getting deep post position and, and easy buckets like he did in those uh, those Lakers and Clippers games where he went off in those two games, which I think were two days apart in, uh, in November. 
the one thing I worry about is that takes a toll on your body because sure. the uh, you know the NBA cleaned up all the hand checking a while ago on the perimeter where those guys can basically run free and and guys like Steph Curry are, are basically unguardable now. Uh, when you watch Embiid post up, and I, I watch a lot of it over the past week, God, that's like a the pain is a war zone when he's trying to yeah. establish position. No, and there, there's a foul on every play. It's a lot like Shaq, where n- not to the degree like Shaq. There was multiple fouls on every play every time he posted up, and a lot of that was because of how Shaq initiated. But he th- there's there's a lot of contact, absolutely. Yeah. So and with the way you know, because Hanlon he said the last dominant low post player was Shaq and my god I, I watched about 20 minutes of Shaq highlights on YouTube holy shit I you just forget how easily that guy would score in NBA finals games he was putting I think it was Matumbo and Ben Wallace who I'm pretty sure were defensive player of the year in both of those respective years he was putting those guys in the goddamn basket he was so good but the, the the difference between now and then is the modern game with three point shooting at all five positions now, uh, that puts more of a wear and tear on your body and is more physically demanding on both ends of the floor. So it'll be interesting to see like like how he handles those two things because again, post ups as good as JoJo is at them, it's still not going to be the main option in your offense. But the Sixers, I could see them featuring it more than any other team, you know, as he as he continues to get better. But yeah, that's the the pounding and the the toll on your body is something I'd like to. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit curious about. Yeah, no, I mean it's then again also if he's in the post, it means he's not doing those dangerous drives to the basket that he loves to do, and seems like every injury occurs from. Um, that's true. Which a big part of the reason I would love for him to be 18 feet and in is because it's just two dribbles instead of three. It seems like he's a lot more under control. When he comes flying in from the three-point line, It's whew, it can get scary. It can get scary. But that that's a facet of his game. Like He, he needs to be able to step out of the three-point line. I don't actually want him taking 18-foot jumpers all day. It's just it, they scare me less. Well, Hanlon talked about that too. That's I think the three areas he said he wanted to improve were low post, three-point shooting, and then those – kamikaze drives to the basket he wants those to be a little more under control which uh no argument here uh t- take an extra dribble man standard control <laughs> yes absolutely um you've been saying that for forever too like the, the the third game you played i think me and you were sitting next to each other and you were like man he's gotta stop with this shit like <laughs> yeah. like the the pump fake and the one dribble and fly into the basket there's just there's no good ending no <laughs> The the best ending is he makes the shot or gets fouled, and he still falls on his face. Right. So right, especially especially that first year, uh, that first year he was just on the floor every play, and it was we were still very much treating him with kid gloves. So it was a a very terrifying experience. And it was it was such a crazy year. There might need to be, especially if he continues to improve and becomes an MVP caliber player. They they would need to spend about ten minutes on that first year in the thirty for thirty because my God there was a turnover every two plays there was he was on the floor every like four out of every five plays it was one of the most wild 
like playing styles I've ever seen. And he's still pretty reckless and pretty wild last year. And it was such an improvement off that first year. Yes, uh, <laughs> so hopefully he can continue to, uh, to refine that area and stay off the floor. Okay. Uh, next up, a mailbag question or two, but first a real quick word from RX Bar. Do you find yourself running out the door late and need a quick but healthy snack? Or do you need something to throw in your backpack before a hiking trip or bike ride? RX Bar has your back. RX Bars come in 14 delicious flavors. From mango pineapple, chocolate hazelnut, peanut butter and berries, mint chocolate chip, peanut butter, chocolate, and coffee, and many more. They even have seasonal flavors. And at RX Bar, they believe in the power of transparency, listing the core ingredients on the front of the package. For example, the mixed berry bar I'm holding right in my hands right now lists three egg whites, six almonds, four cashews, two dates right on the front of the package, making it clear what you're putting into your system. RX Bars are gluten-free, soy-free, and dairy-free, with no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or fillers, and with egg white as a base that stands out as a source of protein that's easy for your body to absorb. No matter your preference of taste, there's an RX bar out there for you. I'm constantly on the run, with not enough time in the morning, as I run out the door at the last second, falling in the habit of running the Wawa for some cheap, quick junk food. Instead, I've now come to rely on grabbing an RX bar to give me that morning boost of energy. My personal favorite so far has been the mixed berry, which includes cranberries, strawberries, and raspberries, in addition to the egg white, almond, and cashew base, providing a delicious mixture of taste in every bite. Go check out RX Bar now and receive 25% off your first order. Visit rxbar.com slash sixersbeat and enter promo code sixersbeat at checkout. Once again, that's rxbar.com slash sixersbeat and use promo code sixersbeat at checkout for 25% off. Okay, on to the questions. From at like persons, you can make Simmons or Fultz a 38-50-85 guy. So he's saying 38% from three, 50% from the field, and 85% from the free throw line. The other shot doesn't progress from where it was last season. Assuming they're both on the team for the next five years, which scenario would be best for championship contention? That's a good question because Simmons might be the best player in the league if you gave him that. But then Fultz is a nothing. Right. And if you give it to Fultz, that's a really good player. That's... You know, an all-star caliber player. And that's your third really good player. And Simmons is still pretty damn good. Uh, hmm. it, that's hard, man. That, Simmons is basically LeBron if you give him that, that level of shooting, though. Uh, wow. Very good question. Uh, the, the best hypothetical I've heard this week besides... Bo Wolf asking all the Eagles the the clone team <laughs> question, um, we, and I think the cl- can we get Bo in a, in a Sixers locker room this year? We got to get Bo in a Sixers locker room. That's got to happen. Watching him do those, like when he transcribes it, and it's just like uh, frantic yelling and arguments or whatever. <laughs> like I, I've seen him do those in person. It, they're, they're unbelievable. Uh, so so back to this one. I this is gonna. This is a tough one, but I'm going to give it to Simmons. Yeah, this was, actually, think, this was pretty easy for him. Uh, go, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just think that's such an amazing player. And you know, while Fultz would give you another another option, and obviously that would be a huge deal for the Sixers if he got to that level, Simmons, I think, I think he's the best player in the league if you give him that level of shooting. Yes. I mean, it's, it's – we – so – 
with the way the NBA is structured, we focus a lot on getting three and now even four stars on a team because the NBA kind of allows that to happen. So we're kind of we, – we, we have it built into our minds that we need three or four great players or at least very good all-star plus level players to really compete, compete for a championship. And I don't disagree with that. And I think if you give Fultz that shot, you will have three all-star or better players with one of them Embiid potentially being the best player in the game, another in Simmons potentially being a top five to ten player in the game. That's really compelling. But like you said, if you give – and it, these percentages don't include volume, so it's – I assume that's on a decent enough volume that teams oh, have take, to expect. He's it. taking a ton of those threes. Right. Yep, that's, that's my If thing. you give Simmons that skill set, you might have the two best players in the game or at least two of the top five players in the game. And if you give me Shaq and Kobe with the way the NBA is structured with its salary cap, first of all, that's a, a 60 to 65 win team. And because of the NBA, you will have another star who will be frustrated with where he's at and you can trade for him. You can find a way to get that third star on your team. You can't find a way to get a top three player in the game. It's just impossibly difficult to do that. Give me two of the all-time greats. I'll figure out how to be creative in getting that third guy if Markel isn't. Um, so I think, it to me, it's a pretty easy question. And at first I was a little unsure because... We have been thinking about, man, how great is it going to be if you have three star or all-star or better players on your roster? But for me, if you get two of the top players in the game and two all-time greats, I'll just I'll find a way to figure it out. I'll find a way. Yeah, it was an easy question, but again, we didn't do any prep on this, so I was thinking about that on the fly. No, I noticed that uh, question about two minutes before I asked it, so Rich came in blind. But yeah, I think I think your point is a good one, and that's that's one that I think we'll talk about a lot over the next couple of years. Yeah. Having a star or an all-star level player is great, but the difference between a top five level player about thereabouts and, you know, the 10th or 15th best player, it's pretty massive. Yep. Yes, it is. Uh, all right. So this one from at Avi underscore W a inspired by all the talk of making a baseball game shorter and less boring. What's one thing you would do to improve NBA games? Not the NBA in general, but specifically the gameplay. They've taken a few good steps. I like that they've gotten rid of the Eurofouls. Uh, they still haven't officially done that. They need to vote on that, but it seems like uh, seems like that's going to happen. The uh, so, so the uh, when I first saw this question, uh, a couple things came to mind. One is allowing less contact in post play and I kind of already touched on that the uh I th I think one of my big bigger things would be make the charge circle wider I hate the charge uh it's not a basketball play guys can get hurt doing it um and I'm not talking about much wider but I just hate when a guy is driving to the basket and he's about to take off, and somebody slides in and takes a charge, and it's a foul on that guy. You, you want to, uh, to me, that's just taking away, you know, the the athleticism and the dunks and all of the cool finishes at the rim that, as an entertainment product, make the NBA so great. Yeah, that was so. Most of my recommendations would not be during the forty-eight minutes of the game. It would be things like, um, you know, get rid of conferences. It would be. You know, maybe maybe cut down on timeouts. Like I could see a, a, a little bit of that. 
That'd be um, cool. But it would be things like shorten the season. So that guys, you don't have guys resting. And you don't have to make that, oh, are we going to get fined or should we rest our best players so they're healthy in June? You don't have to make that decision. I would love that. It's never going to happen, right? Because there's there's very real monetary reasons why that's not going to happen. But like, I would love to see that. I would love to see competitive balance and, 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 and not just, you know, draft lottery changes, but like actual competitive balance. Again, it's not going to happen because there are so many side effects of that. I don't even know if the NBA really cares about that because I think they like super teams. But I like all all teams and all fan bases being engaged. I think it's one of the things that makes the NFL so great outside of the fact that it's football and there's betting and there's all kinds of other reasons. But I, I think part of it is competitive balance. But if you're going to talk about in-game play, then I do think charges and figuring that out. And I do think widening the circle might help that because you just shouldn't be able to stand underneath the rim and that. cut off a driving oh. lane like that. Like you should have to, have to actually defend it. I agree with you there. So if you... Extend that out, extend that to the side, make it so that there is a little less influence on that. I'm right there with you. What, what do you think? A- any idea? I mean, again, the the corners, they've probably extended it about as far as possible. Do you think that they eventually extend might the move? Extend the three-point line? Yeah. Yep. No, I think so, too. And I think, look, I think uh, we're already seeing That might teams, be a good thing, too. Oh, for because, sure. Because you're already seeing teams focus on shooting from farther out. The Sixers have a four-point line. In their practice gym, the the Rockets um, willingly shoot 30-footers with regularity. As teams get more comfortable having guys practice from further away, then, yeah, I think eventually you move the four-point line back. You have guys stationed farther away. Increased driving lanes and movement inside the arc. I think that is something we will eventually see, yeah. Yeah, that can help post-play, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Space is great. Space is great. That's why when people complain about shooting and how much a three- three ball is utilizing the NBA, I think they're missing the point because that's making the rest of the game more fun to watch as well. Yeah. But in terms of uh, what actually happens on the court, I'm pretty happy where the NBA is right now. Uh, these are these are smaller tweaks. The, Coming out uh, of early 2000s iso ball to where we are now, I am very happy with where the game is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's good. The uh, like you said, most of my suggestions would be off-court things, things to do with length of the season, and uh, of course I have some uh, some bones to pick with the CBA, but we don't need to get into that today. All right, I think that's probably good. We don't need these really long off-season podcasts. So, thank you, Rich, once again for jumping on, uh, and have a good one. All right, man. See ya. You've been listening to the Sixers Beat right here on LibertyBallers.com and LibertyBroadcast.co.